As the winter doldrums begin to fade and spring planning begins in earnest ahead of a busy planting season, stress and anxiety can be at all-time highs. How to get ahead of mental health crises in the year ahead? That's today on Field Posts. Post is a DTN Progressive Farmer podcast that dives deeper into the most important trends in agriculture to explore the business's cutting edge. I'm your host, Sarah Mock. Mental health is a topic that's growing more prominent in the agricultural space as more and more farmers and ag professionals come to terms with how important it is not only to be physically well, but to be mentally and emotionally healthy too. In recent years, conversations have flourished at national ag meetings and in local communities and farmer peer groups as growers and those around them flex their skills at reaching out and helping one another, especially during the most stressful seasons. Today, rural mental health expert Dr. Josie Rodolfi joins us to discuss her recent research on farm family psychology and how to apply what she and her colleagues are learning about stress and anxiety on the farm to help keep your farm family and business healthy this year. She'll dive into how children and adolescents can be affected by stress and depression in farm settings, and how to help them through difficult times with strategies around communication and support. Plus, she'll discuss how to identify warning signs, what resources are available, and even how to think about mental health first aid, right after this word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by DTN's all-new Ag Summit series, The annual Ag Summit is a mainstay for progressive farmers who are looking to build knowledge and refine their decision-making skills during the winter months. But now the team at DTN is bringing all the news, insights, and learnings to you throughout the year. Here's DTN business editor Katie Dellinger for more on the first Ag Summit series event coming soon. What we've decided to do for 2023 is to do more frequent updates in a similar format and style as Ag Summit. So we're going to be doing the Ag Summit series. The first event starts February 28th. We are going to be weighing in on this pre-planting situation. You know that it's going to be a tight race for acres this year. It's going to be an interesting one. And so what we're going to do is we're going to bring together DTN analyst Todd Holtman to really talk and lead the discussion on that. We're also going to have DTN ag meteorologist John Baranek give an updated and detailed look at the spring planting forecast so that farmers can really get an idea of what's going to be going on as they hit the ground in March when that discussion around acreage is really heating up and then in late March and early April when people are out there putting that seed in the ground we're really looking to try and give some insights and some opportunities for discussion ahead of that at the DTN Ag Summit series. These DTN Ag Summit series events will be half days, so it'll be mornings, probably about 8.30 to 11 or noon. So it's not as much of a commitment as the DTN Ag Summit, but it'll be definitely worth your while to get up on the news and issues of the day with the people who are influencing it most. To learn more, visit spotlights.dtnpf.com backslash ag summit. Now back to the show. Dr. Josie Rodolfi is not only a rural and ag mental health researcher and expert, she's also an assistant professor of agriculture and biological engineering at the University of Illinois. 
Dr. Rodolfi, I'd love to just get started with a little bit of background. Tell us who you are and how you got involved with this work. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for having me. I am an assistant professor and extension specialist at the University of Illinois. So in that role, I spend part of my day uh, doing research and teaching on topics related to agricultural safety and health. But then I also spend a chunk of my time in the extension space. So working on outreach and resource delivery, again, in the ag safety and health space, primarily targeted to farmers. In the last five years, I've really focused almost entirely on farm stress and mental health. So thinking about how the farm environments and the unique stressors that our farmers experience may be contributing to poor mental health, specifically measured by symptoms of anxiety, depression, and even like risk for suicide. So I got into this space. I did my PhD at the University of Iowa in agricultural safety and health, and I was really interested in child ag injury prevention. I spent two years up in central Wisconsin at a research institute, and that's really when we saw articles related to farm stress and mental health in the popular press. And as a farm kid, I thought, well, absolutely. We know farming is stressful. We know that there's a lot of anxiety, depression. We know that there's a suicide risk. But as a researcher, we didn't know to that, like to what extent. And so I've spent some time thinking and working as to how we quantify that and how we compare that to what we know about the national statistics and then what we do for our farming communities with that information. I want to get into the specific work you've done, but I want to talk first about, I, it feels like this is such a transforming space, maybe. You mentioned that agriculture and farming can be a very stressful, a lot of anxiety, but I feel like for a long time until like quite recently, it was still not a thing that people talked about. Mm -hmm. I wonder if you could talk about that background and then also how is that evolving and changing and how, what are you seeing on the ground as that evolves? Good question. So you're absolutely right. There have been people working in farm stress and mental health from a research and extension standpoint for some time now. So we certainly appreciate the legwork that they have done because it has so long been this topic that's highly stigmatized and people didn't really want to talk about. A lot of what we have used is from European countries that were having conversations about farm stress and mental health back in like the 70s and the 80s, early 90s, whereas a lot of what we have in the U.S. is much more early 2000 type work and beyond. And it's been a really interesting experience. I've only been in the space for five years, but it's been really interesting to talk to colleagues who have been working in the space for longer because I think their experience has been very different. I'm working with a generation that is a little bit more open to talking about stress and talking about mental health, which is really awesome and really encouraging. But thinking about how that differs by generation, when we work with some of our older generations, there still is a little bit of pushback. Um, but one thing that I think is incredibly promising is how enthusiastic a lot of our ag organizations are about being responsive and being responsible and talking about stress and talking about mental health at some of their national conferences and conventions. So we see a lot of our commodity groups, our, our member organizations taking this on and definitely not shying away from the topic with the impression that it's going to make people uncomfortable. They're acknowledging that this is something we have to talk about. I appreciate the reference to the different generations. I feel like that is a big part of this, but maybe not in the way that people think, especially as it comes to your research. I think when people think of farmer mental health, the average age of the farmer is 67 or so. We think of the people who maybe struggle the most and who it is least culturally acceptable to talk about or seek help or seek resources is that older group. But you've also focused a lot of your research on how stress on the farm affects younger people, children, adolescents. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. And I think people think of kids as so resilient and can kind of bounce back from anything and they can't possibly be affected by stress on the farm in the same right. way as adults, but not the case maybe. 
Absolutely not. Yeah, this is a good question. And this is a project that I'm deeply passionate about because I grew up on a farm. And so I definitely know that kids are not immune to what's happening on the farm. They are not naive to what's going on. Our kitchen table was our kitchen table, but it's also was our boardroom. It's where a lot of big decisions were being made over dinner. The farm is unique in that farmers often don't get to separate work and life as much. And so kids obviously see what's going on. I started this project about two years ago, and it's funded by the National Children's Center for Rural Agricultural Health and Safety. And really, the impetus for the project was just that we have a lot of momentum and energy around farm stress and mental health right now. But a lot of what's happening is really focused on the adult farmer. But we think it's really important to think about how this experience is influencing the youngest people on the farm, the people who might grow up to be a farmer someday and hopefully have developed healthy coping mechanisms and strategies. So we are surveying farm parents and adolescents together and asking questions about, asking each questions about stress and mental health, and then looking at like important associations there. And so what we found is that parental depressed mood is highly correlated with adolescent depressed mood, which makes a ton of sense. Like if you're living in, a, in an environment with somebody and they're experiencing emotional distress, you would probably expect other people in the household to absorb and feel some of the same symptoms. And that's exactly what we're seeing. And um, I think what this really underscores is the importance of family focused or group focused resources and services. We can't target everything towards the adult owner operator. We have to think about everybody that's in the system, partners, spouses, children, and, and hired, hired labor as well. And thinking about how this is, we're all contributing probably in some perspective to the work that's happening. And so we're probably all then also absorbing some of that stress. I think what's also really important is that we recognize that in these samples of farmers that we have, we're observing a higher prevalence of anxiety and depression than what we see in the general population, which again, underscores the need for targeted resources and services and other types of interventions. So we're seeing higher rates of anxiety, depression, and then we're seeing that anxiety and depression highly correlated with adolescent anxiety and depression. And so it's this, just like this cloud that's continuing to form and grow around the issue, I think. I wonder if you could talk specifically maybe a little bit about kind of some of those stressors. You mentioned just like being around a stressed or anxious or depressed adult is part of it, but I wonder conversations, physical activity, what other kinds of things might be impacting youth on the farm? Yeah. So that's a really good question. And we're still sort of trying to work through some of that data to figure out where their stress points really are. The model that we're using, the family stress model would suggest that youth are not directly impacted by like commodity prices or the weather, the way the parent is, or I should say the adult operator that's also a parent. We see that association to be quite strong and that parents' depressed mood is highly correlated with things like weather, time pressures, and personal finances. But for adolescents, we expect that that relationship's a little different in that the parents are impacted by some of these external stressors. And as a function of being stressed and perhaps experiencing symptoms of anxiety and depression, their parenting style changes and they become a little bit more neglectful. Perhaps they become more irritable. The relationship they have with their child and even their partner changes. And then that is how anxiety and depression is manifested in the child specifically. And I think a lot of people probably are hearing this conversation and thinking, oh no, I either maybe know a kid that maybe seems to be experiencing that, or maybe I know a family that maybe is going through some of that. I wonder if you could talk 
a little bit about warning signs, maybe for thinking about just looking around in your life. And then what kind of options do people have when they're just thinking, oh, I think there might be some of this going on in my life. I want to do something about it. Absolutely. You have two really good questions there. So the first is what are those warning signs? And I think a lot of us probably have in our mind a very perhaps stereotypical picture of what somebody who is experiencing depression maybe looks like. But I think what's important is that we realize that there are emotional changes, behavioral changes, and even physical changes that somebody may go through if they're experiencing symptoms of anxiety and depression. And so one thing I really encourage people to look for are changes or deviations in behavior from what's typically normal. So that means is somebody sleeping more or sleeping less? Is somebody eating more is eating less? Is somebody have their grades changed drastically? Are they typically like B student and they're they're really challenged by their grades right now. So we want to look for those changes or deviations in what we typically observe. Some people don't sleep very much. It's not healthy necessarily, but they're just naturally maybe not great sleepers. So it's really important to be able to highlight those changes that you observe, um, especially if you're going to talk to somebody. And so then you express a ton of care and concern and you say, I'm really worried about you. I really care about you. And I've noticed changes in X, Y, and Z. So you can lay out pieces of evidence perhaps to really help somebody see for themselves the way perhaps their behaviors have changed. We also look for changes in emotion. So is somebody becoming more irritable than usual? Again, than usual. Is somebody becoming more reserved than usual? Is somebody isolating themselves more than normal? And so watching for, like I said, those changes in behaviors that maybe occur for two weeks or more, we would consider that to be a critical period. And then one thing we're doing as part of the North Central Farm and Ranch Stress Assistance Center, which is a USDA funded regional farm stress center, is we're really focused on getting resources and services to people in really the modality that they want. So we offer a hotline for agricultural producers. It's We consider it one of the best hotlines in the Midwest. It's originally the Iowa Concern Hotline. It's now called the Concern Hotline. And they have a long track record of providing legal, financial, stress, and other types of resources to farmers specifically. We also have a website, farmstress.org. We have over 110 different farm and ranch specific stress and mental health resources. And you can search by various keywords, including family and children. So we have resources there that are specific to farm youth. The other thing we do, we're offering a number of different mental health literacy programs targeted to non-mental health professionals. So these include things like mental health first aid, QPR, and a few others. And the goal is to really increase community capacity to respond to a mental health crisis so that you don't have to be, like I said, a mental health professional to help to somebody in need. So these really focus on increasing self-efficacy and confidence around asking somebody if they've considered suicide, asking somebody how they're feeling and expecting a very honest answer and being able then to help and refer somebody to the type of care that their situation would warrant important resources there. We'll link to those additionally in the show notes. A couple of other questions, speaking for myself personally, and when I'm thinking about changes in mood or behavior, like seasonal changes are a big part of that, especially I'm thinking in the farm context, because it's just, the winter is just so different from the rest of the year in terms of activity levels. Does the way you think about mental health in the winter change or talk about what the winter is like and how maybe to navigate some of those unique seasonal issues? 
Absolutely. So we know that sunlight is good for everybody, right? And so seasonal affective disorder is very real. We know that there's a large proportion of the population that experiences symptoms of depression during the winter, typically a function of just not having enough sunlight. And that's an oversimplified version of it. And I do apologize to any mental health professional for that. But we think it's especially important in the winter to do the things that are going to make you feel good. And so we know we get a lot less activity in the winter, we know that we are outdoors a lot less in the Midwest, especially there's just a lot less to do. So we really encourage people to make sort of their winter plan and have a couple of things either on a, in a notebook or in a bulletin board or a whiteboard, if you keep it of things that when you start to feel again, the symptoms of depression or the wintertime blues, as they're sometimes called things that, you know, are going to make you feel better. And so it oftentimes requires a little bit of reflection and thinking about what are the things that really make me feel good? And so is it engaging in a hobby? Is it getting some physical activity? Is it you're doing something with a friend or a family member? But being really cognizant of what you require to help reduce your stress, improve your mental health, and writing them down so that when you are perhaps in a moment where you're feeling overwhelmed, you're feeling especially distraught, you're not then also forced to think, oh, okay, what are the things that make me feel better? You can go to a list and you can say, oh, here's a list of six things. I'm going to try the first one. Now, that being said, we don't expect exercise to, as a cure-all, right? And so if you are experiencing, like I said, changes in mood that are persisting for two weeks or more, and you're not finding any sort of respite from the situation, I would definitely encourage anybody to seek out professional care. And the first recommendation we always make is to go to your primary care provider because they can screen you for various types of conditions. They can offer medications, talk through options for medication, if that's something you're interested in. But they can also make referrals then to other types of mental health care that might be available within your insurance network or your community. I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about that, because I think I hear so often from folks who, especially who live in very small towns and very rural communities who are just like, well, I would maybe think about it, but I just know that there's no one around here. So I, I have no options. I guess I just have to keep muscling through. Primary care physician is something that most folks have access to. What are other options that people can have of, it's not just you alone out there if you can't go directly to a, red, a certified therapist? Yep, absolutely. Like I said, the first thing we do recommend is your primary care because they're going to have hopefully a good idea of your, your background in general, your life history, perhaps social history, occupational history. And then they might be able to make some recommendations in your community, perhaps, and perhaps something to see in your insurance network. If that's not an option, you know, one thing we're starting to see some people really appreciate and enjoy are an app-based therapy option. And so things like BetterHelp, things like Headspace. Some of these are self-guided mental health experiences and others you actually get matched with a therapist. They're not free, of course, but you do get matched with a therapist and you can participate in group or individual therapy typically once a week. And I think some of those are for as little as 60 to 80 bucks a week, which is not free. And I acknowledge that, but it is an option for people who maybe for whatever reason don't have access to somebody in their network and again, in their community. One thing some of our partners in the North Central Farm and Ranch Stress Assistance Center are doing is offering low or no cost behavioral health services to farmers. So a good example that I can talk about is the North Dakota State University, and their extension is partnering with a nonprofit in the state to provide no cost behavioral health counseling to farmers. Farmers submit a referral for counseling vouchers. They're issued through extension, and then those farmers can take those vouchers to one of the healthcare providers that's partnering with extension. So it's a really great model 
we're seeing that expand in the Midwest, which we're really excited about. And I think one, one in addition to getting people, obviously, mental health care, it also teaches people how to get into the system which can be incredibly challenging. A lot of us want to be in therapy, perhaps. We just don't know where to start. So here's a step-by-step. Here's the voucher. Here's the list of people. Here's who you can call, get set up. And it really introduces you to the system so that perhaps it's not so overwhelming and the opportunity that you want to pursue it on your own later. Yeah, those barriers are, especially when you're already feeling down or low energy can be so huge. Absolutely. And that's why that's why I really encourage people to be as proactive as we can, like you can't always anticipate when, you know, you're not going to feel awesome, but what we can do is have, I call it kind of like your Rolodex of things that work. So I know, for example, that, um, I benefit from exercise and I know that it can typically improve my mood enough that I can be productive and happy and healthy. So I have to keep that in the back of my head. And every time I get to feeling anxious or overwhelmed, I need to tell myself, Hey, Let's go for a run. It works for me. It's quite oversimplified and I understand that, but thinking about having things in your toolbox of the work for you so that when you are struggling and it's hard for you to even think through what's going to make me feel better, you have that list already created and you don't have to add more work for yourself. I want to come back to folks who are maybe thinking about maybe feeling good themselves, but are learning about, oh, maybe the fact of like growing up on a farm is impacting my kids in ways I don't understand or impacting my spouse in ways I don't understand. I wonder if you have some advice on how to start small in feeling out maybe possibilities there or just opening lines of communication, maybe within a family to, to be open about those kind of things. Yeah. So I think the more open we can be, obviously the better. And I think always expressing concern first for somebody, right? We don't ever want to come down hard on anybody. Most of what happens on the farm is not somebody's fault right? We can't control the weather. We can't control the commodity prices. We also know that we have periods of extreme stress on the farm. So in the Midwest, we think about spring and fall as being like a fury of activity. There's a lot to get done and there's a ton of pressure on these two seasons. So one thing I like to see farm families do is think about before it is spring, we can do some planning, right? And so we can anticipate some of the stress. And I think it's really important for families or farm families and or their employees to sit down ahead of these busy seasons and talk about what were some of the pinch points last year? How do we correct some of that for this year? Do we need to be doing things earlier? Do we need to plan further in advance? How do we get checklists and other sorts of systems in place? How are we going to check in on each other, right? Some people don't want to talk about their feelings, but we have to be in this together. And so trying to understand, identify how people want to be checked in on and how you're going to express care for them. Is someone going to take care of all the meals? That seems so like such a minor little thing, but if you don't have to think about meals, it's just a stress off of you, right? How are we going to divvy up childcare during these very stressful times? Who can we call on when we don't feel like we can be great parents? Who can we call on? Do we have grandparents local? Do we have aunts and uncles? Do we have the neighbor that we know if we're feeling like a terrible parent, is there somebody else that can love our child for a few hours while we just get our thoughts and selves together. So thinking about setting up these sort of systems of checks and balances, reassuring one another, and then having contingency plans for when things go awry, because they probably will, as to insulate, hopefully, children, especially from a lot of those circumstances. 
A follow-up to that. I know with adults, mental health, one of the big kind of strategies that is talked about is having a peer group and people who are going through this a similar kind of stress and also who you can talk to without feeling maybe like you're burdening them like you might feel as you talk to your family. I wonder, do you all see that being effective with children as well? So I haven't done specific research on that, but we certainly know nothing adds good for our mental health and social connectedness. That's research in general has just proven that we have to be socially connected to people. And it's challenging in agriculture because it can be an incredibly isolating occupation um, and environment. And so what we just encourage, like I said, I don't have a ton of research to, to suggest, you know, that it's scientifically efficacious, but whatever we can do to keep people, especially kids, actively engaged with their peers. That's why we have all these sorts sports programs and other types of extracurriculars. We acknowledge that these are really healthy for people. It becomes more challenging to stay socially connected as we age. And what we've noticed in agriculture, especially, is that there are tons of opportunity for camaraderie, right? There's a lot of commodity groups, church organizations, other types of rural organizations, community organizations, but farmers always have an excuse to not do something. So I'm busy. I got to haul this. I got to move this. We got to do, we got to plant, we got to harvest. There's a lot of excuses. So what I really encourage people is that if you notice some of your friends or colleagues are starting to avoid some of those social situations they might typically have gone to, that's when we need to start asking questions, asking them why they're not showing up. Are they avoiding something? Are they experiencing symptoms of anxiety, depression, or are they really just busy? But it can become very easy to isolate yourself in this occupation. And we really, as a community, have to be taking care of one another and calling each other out when we're starting to perhaps become isolated. For more information and links to any of the resources Dr. Rodolfi mentioned in today's interview, check out the show notes. And for more reporting on farm lifestyles and farmer mental health, visit dtnpf.com or subscribe to the monthly DTN Progressive Farmer magazine. This episode of Field Post was brought to you by the team at DTN Progressive Farmer, with special thanks to Dr. Josie Rodolfi. This episode was produced and edited by me, Sarah Mock, with support by Greg Hillier and Kylie Swanson. And a big thanks to all of you for listening. If you like the show, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And until next time, remember, the future of farming is here. This episode of Field Post is brought to you by DTN Ag Weather Station. Are you looking to get more accurate, hyper-local weather information? By gathering weather and agronomic data directly from your own fields, DTN Ag Weather Station supports you when making targeted decisions around expensive or high-risk activities like chemical applications and irrigation. DTN's Ag Weather Station can be purchased for as low as $9 a month depending on your current customer status with DTN. If you're looking to increase your weather accuracy while saving time, please visit DTN.com.